Okay, I want to start off uh, the new year with some congregational participation. So I'm going to read you a list of expressions or sayings, and I simply want you to raise your hand after each one if you've heard it before. It's pretty simple. First one, you are the salt of the earth. Heard it before? Good, good. You are a city on a hill. Turn the other cheek. You heard that before? Okay, good. Go the extra mile. You might want to switch hands if you're getting tired. Uh, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Judge not, lest you be judged. Take the log out of your own eye. Just a few more. Keep going. Stay strong. Uh, Don't cast your pearls before swine. Uh, Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Beware of wolves in sheep's clothing. And the wise man built his house upon the rock. The foolish man built his house upon the sand. Okay. A lot of you have heard all of them. Uh, Many of you have heard most of them. What do all these things have in common? They're all from the Sermon on the Mount. All these sayings come from the Sermon on the Mount. They come from this Sermon of Jesus that's recorded for us in Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7. Um, This sermon uh, that that Jesus preached, um, I'm calling it the best sermon ever, and I think I'm justified in that for a couple reasons. Uh, First of all, because of who preached it. This is a sermon by Jesus. It's the best sermon ever because Jesus preached it. So this isn't me preaching a sermon. This is not your favorite preacher, whoever that may be. Uh, this is Jesus preaching. When Jesus preached, he did not have duds. Okay, he did not have uh, sermons that just, oh, yeah, that was all right. No, this is Jesus, right? His, his sermons are great sermons. He's not boring. He's not irrelevant. His sermons are clear and they're profound. It's the best sermon because Jesus preached it. It's also the best sermon because of the content of it. This, this teaching, as you, as you know, I mean, you, you've heard all of these sayings. This, this, uh, this is a quotable, memorable sermon, and the, the content of it is incredibly profound. Um, arguably, the entire shape of Western culture can be traced back to the principles and the teachings that Jesus gave in this sermon. It's one of the most influential things that's ever been spoken. It's the best sermon ever. But there's a problem with this sermon, and uh, there's a a pastor named John Stott who wrote a, a book about this sermon, and his opening line nails the problem head on. He says, The Sermon on the Mount is probably the best known part of the teaching of Jesus though arguably it is the least understood, and certainly it is the least obeyed. So this is the problem with the Sermon on the Mount. It's, it's widely known, arguably the best known part of the teaching of Jesus, though it is the least understood, and certainly it's the least obeyed. I think by and large that's true, uh, and it's a tragedy. The best sermon ever is widely known, but as a whole it's not well understood. And more tragically, those who claim to follow Jesus don't obey it. So what I want to do this new year is start off and seeing if we can change that, at least for us. To see if we can learn more about the Sermon on the Mount so that we can really understand it, but not just understand it, also begin to do it. So here's the plan. Today, we're going to see the forest. Today, we're going to look at the whole sermon, chapter 5 through 7, in a big 
you know, 30,000 foot overview. We're going to see the forest. Um, I want to see the sermon as a whole sermon because there's a lot of quotable quotes, as we've already seen, and, and it's very easy to get bogged down in the details and, 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 and get you know, kind of trapped in, in just seeing the individual tree and look at the little branches and look at the little leaf. And, and, you, and they're wonderful leaves, they're beautiful branches, but there's a whole forest to be seen. And so today I want to see the forest and what is the sermon? What is Jesus trying to communicate in this whole thing? So today I want to work through the outline for the whole sermon and then over the next you know, three months... Um, walk through it bit by bit and look at the individual trees, but keep an eye on the forest as we go. Uh, now, each week as well, because we're trying to cover big chunks, um, you're encouraged to ask questions. I mentioned this already, but you're encouraged to ask questions. You can text uh, questions uh, on your phone to the number that's in your bulletin, or you can pull out those little uh, mint sheets in your pew and write questions and drop them off in the back because it'll be helpful for our interaction, understanding this uh, together. I'll try to answer those questions on the church Facebook page as well as giving written, printout, written printouts. And hopefully as we do this, this sermon will become more well-known, more understood, and ultimately obeyed. So if you have your Bibles this morning, please turn to Matthew chapter 5. If you want to grab one of the uh, Black Pew Bibles in front of you there, page 809. We're going to try to zoom through this today, the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5 through 7. But before we jump into chapter 5, I want to give you a little background because we have to understand where this is coming from. So we'll begin in chapter 4, verses 23 through 25. Let me read that for us. Speaking of Jesus, it says, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread through all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. What we need to see out of this background before we get into the sermon is that, that Jesus is proclaiming good news. He's proclaiming the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God is good news. The key phrase is here in, in verse 23 of chapter 4. It says he goes about proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Gospel, as many of you know, literally just means good news. So Jesus is going around proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. If you jump back to verse 17 in chapter 4, see that Jesus says, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this phrase, kingdom of heaven, in other places is, is uh, presented as kingdom of God. They're interchangeable. So what Jesus is doing is he's saying, Uh, He's walking around saying, repent, the kingdom of God is here. And somehow that's good news. So the two questions we have to say is, well, what does that mean? And why is it good news? And and thankfully, it's not actually that complicated. See, the kingdom of God, what is the kingdom of God? It it just means the reign or the rule of God. So when Jesus said the kingdom of God is here, he's saying God's reign, God's rule is here. God is king. We don't want to think about it like we often think of kingdoms in our uh, day and age, we think of like the United Kingdom, for example, in, in Great Britain. And we think, well, it's just a certain territory. It's a political entity. It's got boundaries and immigration policy and taxes. And you know, we think a kingdom is a realm. But there's another usage of the word kingdom to mean the, the rule or the reign. You know, the, the kingdom, it's, it's not a territory, but it's the actual authority, the reign of the king. And what Jesus is proclaiming is, is not that he's got some sort of uh, boundary marker where he's going to draw a, a border around a land and say, here is the kingdom of God. But he's saying, no, the kingdom of God is here because the king is here. 
He's saying, I'm God, I'm, I'm the king, I'm here. The kingdom is at hand because the king is here and I'm bringing my reign and my rule and authority and you need to follow me. He's saying, repent, the king is here, come follow me. The kingdom of God is the reign of God through Jesus Christ. Okay, but it says this is good news. It's the gospel of the kingdom. It's the good news of the kingdom. So what's good about this? Well, the good news is that if Jesus is king, that means Satan isn't king anymore. Okay, Jesus, Jesus is king. That's good news that Jesus is king because that means Satan's not king anymore. In Ephesians 2, as one place, for example, you can read about, uh, about Satan. And it calls him the prince of the power of the air. In some sense, Satan is, has authority as the king of the world as it is now. Uh, and he's a really horrible king. Can we agree on that? Right? Satan does a really bad job of ruling the world. I mean, his kingdom is full of hatred and anger and greed and murder and selfishness. It's the kingdom of darkness. It's not the sort of kingdom that you want to be a part of. But the good news of the kingdom, when Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand, he's saying you don't have to be in that kingdom anymore. You don't have to be in the devil's kingdom. You can trade Satan in for Jesus, and that's great news. It's like trading a corrupt politician for an honest one. It's like replacing an abusive father with a loving one. It's like overthrowing this horrible dictator and getting an infinitely wise and benevolent one in his place. Okay, that's the good news Jesus is proclaiming. There's a new king in town inviting us to be part of his kingdom, to leave behind darkness and follow him. Now, the big question that rises out of this, when you've got a guy walking around saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, come follow me, be a part of this kingdom, the big question is, what will that look like? You claim to be a king, you claim to have a kingdom, tell me more about this kingdom, Jesus. And that's exactly what the Sermon on the Mount is. As Jesus, having proclaimed to the people, I am the king, come join my kingdom and follow me, now he sits down and he tells them, this is what the kingdom is like. This is what it looks like to live under the reign of King Jesus. So as we get to the sermon, the big question is how to live under the kingship of Jesus. And just as an aside, if you're using the note-taking outline in your bulletin today, I'm going to really try over the whole series to use this as our outline. Okay, this is the, I'm giving you today the outline of the whole sermon, and we're just going to work through it over the course of our series. So just pay attention to these headings. The whole sermon is how to live under the kingship of Jesus. Now, the first thing you have to know if, if someone's introducing a kingdom, claiming to be a king, is how do I get in? What is Jesus' immigration policy? How do you become a citizen of his country? Who does he let in? And that's where he starts the teaching. Who gets in the kingdom? That's what verses 1 through 12 are in chapter 5 of the Sermon on the Mount. And we're not going to read the whole sermon today. We'll get through it eventually. I'm going to pull out key verses for us. And the key verse in this first section is verse 3. Chapter 5, verse 3, the question, who gets in the kingdom? Jesus says, the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit get in. This is another way of of saying the ones who get in the kingdom are the ones who come with nothing. 
The ones who get in are the ones who come with nothing to offer, nothing but faith in Jesus. It's not the religious performers. It's not the incredible do-gooders who earn their worth and then present all of their works to Jesus and say, look what I have. Surely this earns me entrance into your kingdom. He says, no, the ones who come are the ones who come with empty hands, with an honest assessment of their hearts, who are poor in spirit. You get into the kingdom of Jesus by faith, not by anything you've done. You have to be poor in spirit. This is such an important point. We will spend all week, next week, talking about this. Because everything that follows has to be seen in light of the first thing Jesus says. He starts here. He starts by saying, you've got to be poor in spirit. You have to have nothing to get in. That's all you need is nothing. He starts there because everything else that follows after this can be completely misunderstood if you don't get that. You can read the Sermon on the Mount, and so many people have. I have. Read the Sermon on the Mount as a list of laws and rules and expectations that Christ has for us that if we don't do these things, there's no way we're getting in. And that's completely wrong because it ignores the first thing he says. Jesus says, you get in by being poor in spirit, not by performing, not by meeting my standards. You get in by admitting that you have no success, that you can't meet my standards. And then everything else that follows is him saying, now once you're in, here's how you live. This is what life looks like in my kingdom, but you don't get in by by impressing me. You get in by admitting that you have nothing to offer. You have to be poor in spirit. So, once we're in, that's how you get in the kingdom. Be poor in spirit. Come by faith. Once we get in, what are we signing up for? Jesus says, well, here's what the whole point of the kingdom is. What's your mission? It's in verses 13 through 16. And the mission of the citizens of the kingdom is to be salt and light. I'll just read these verses, Matthew 5, 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So as you enter the kingdom by faith, being poor in spirit, Jesus says, now your mission is to be salt and light. Salt is a preservative. So the citizens of the kingdom are meant to have this role of preserving society, of being a preserving function in a world that's still dominated by Satan. And we're called to be light, that is to expose the darkness, to shine, to show a better way in a world that's still dominated by Satan. Now the fact that this is our mission tells us something about the nature of the kingdom. It coexists with the kingdom of Satan. Okay, so we have this opportunity, this invitation to transfer ourselves from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, but the kingdom of darkness is still there. This is where so many people went off in Jesus' day. The Jews, his contemporaries, just missed it because they thought when the kingdom comes, it comes, it's over. Right? When, when a king shows up, then he defeats the Romans, he defeats all the bad guys, he establishes his kingdom, he reigns over the world, evil's done with, and, and, we, and, and we just got the kingdom. And so they were confused when Jesus showed up and he started saying stuff like this. What he's saying, though, is that when the kingdom came, it wasn't like that. It was different. It was coexisting. In other times, Jesus said the kingdom is like a little yeast that works itself through a whole batch of dough. Or the kingdom is like the smallest seed that grows up into a giant tree. 
saying the kingdom comes progressively. The kingdom, you know, Christ reigns in your heart. He transfers you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. But the kingdom of darkness is still there, and you're still living in the midst of the world. And so you have a mission. You have a mission to advance the kingdom. A mission to be salt, to be light, to change the world. See, Jesus is inviting people to join his kingdom and to join with him in his work of establishing his kingdom, changing the world as we follow him. Now, that is a huge task. It's a huge task, and so Jesus has to tell us a lot more about how to do that, and that's what the rest of the sermon is. So we look now at chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, and he gives us the first clarification on this mission, on this journey. And he says, this life in the kingdom that I'm calling you to is different from anything you've ever seen before. It is different from any other sort of man-made religion. On the, first, on, on the one hand, first he says, this is not about lawlessness. In verse 17, he says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. See, when you, when you start talking about poor in spirit and, and coming by faith and all this grace and not having to do anything, the natural question that arises is to say, okay, so in this kingdom, Jesus, does it not matter what I do? Right? If, if you accept people by, by just being poor in spirit, by just showing up and saying, I can't meet your standards, if that's the whole deal then it doesn't matter what I do, right? I can just go live however I want. I, I'm in the kingdom and I'm going to go do what I want. And Jesus says, no, 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 it's not about lawlessness. There's still law, there's still expectations that God has for us. But on the other hand, it's not legalism. This is where he continues in verse 20. He says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, you've got to understand who these people are. The scribes are professional Bible scholars. They're the folks who are studying the Bible, transcribing the Bible, uh, preserving the written uh, record of God's uh, inspiration. Uh, they, they're the scribes. They're professional Bible scholars. The Pharisees are a similar group, and, and they're folks who are so obsessed with the law and keeping the law that they actually create new rules of their own to make sure that they never get close to breaking the actual rules. So they create buffer rules, and they try to follow those rules to make sure they never actually break God's laws. They're so concerned, for example, about God's law, about tithing, giving 10% of their resources, that they tithe out of their spice rack. Okay, they give 10% of their spices. They're, you know, they're measuring out their little dill and cumin and rosemary. They're just making sure, I'm going to give 10% of everything, because they're so obsessed with keeping the law. They're all about the rules. And you would think, if anybody got into the kingdom of heaven, it would be these guys. But Jesus says they don't get it at all. He says they completely miss it. Their righteousness is so worthless that Jesus says in verse 20, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven at all. Now this is really confusing for, for some. Because you look at the Pharisees and the scribes and you say, who could exceed their righteousness? These guys are tithing their spices. I'm not even close to that. But Christ's point is, you have to exceed the righteousness because their righteousness is actually zero. Right? You have to exceed the righteousness because their righteousness is actually worthless. 
You have to have better righteousness than theirs because theirs is a false righteousness. It's a fake righteousness. It's not real. Because theirs is only concerned with keeping the rules. And when Jesus shows up and he establishes his kingdom, he says, it's not about lawlessness, doing whatever you want, but it's certainly not about legalism and only barely just following the rules and conforming to our behaviors. He says, real righteousness is much deeper. It's about love. It's about love flowing from a transformed heart. This is where he moves next in his sermon in verses 21 through the end of chapter 5. This is Jesus laying out what real righteousness is. It's not about lawlessness and doing whatever you want. It's not about legalism, just following the rules. It's about love, doing what's genuinely good for other people. He gives these examples like anger. He says, you've heard it said, don't murder. The Pharisees and scribes say, look, the law says don't murder. So as long as I don't physically kill somebody, I'm righteous. And Jesus says, no, obviously it's much deeper than that. Because you could go your whole life never killing somebody, but be an angry, bitter, destructive, hateful person. And that's not righteous. Or the Pharisees say, well, the law says don't commit adultery. And they say, I've never slept with someone who's not my spouse. And Jesus says, congratulations, but you understand that righteousness is much bigger than not physically sleeping with another person. It's, it's about your whole orientation towards others. It's about the lust that's in your heart. That can be damaging and hurtful to others as well. And and, and time and again, Jesus lays it out and he says the real righteousness, the kingdom righteousness, is not lawlessness, it's not legalism, it's love. It's love. Life in the kingdom is about having a heart that's transformed and renewed by an encounter with God that now wants to love God and wants to love others. Okay, let's take a time out here. Time time out from the Sermon on the Mount. This should sound really familiar. Right? If, if you're familiar with the New Testament at all, you should recognize, oh, yeah, this is what Paul says. This is what Peter says. This is what all the, the, the writers of the New Testament say. Why do you think that is? It's because they got it from Jesus. Okay? When you read the New Testament, the consistent message is you get into the kingdom by faith, not by works. And that once you get in, your life is transformed so that you don't just live for yourself lawlessly and you don't just barely outwardly follow the rules, but your heart is transformed and you live a life of love. That's what Christianity is all about. And that's what this first chapter of the sermon is saying. It's Jesus laying it out for us. We're called to love. Now, it's probably going to take us a month and a half to get here. (laughs) But that's the first chapter. And that's what Jesus is establishing. And I think here in chapter 6 is where it really gets interesting. Because in chapter 6, Jesus says, in essence, you can get all this stuff we've talked about so far. You can understand you get in the kingdom by faith. You can understand that it's all about love and, and having a transformed heart. And you can still completely go off the rails. And so in the rest of the sermon, he gives four ways in which we can shipwreck our faith and completely go off the rails, even if we get the main tenets right. And the first one that he lays out, the first threat to our life in the kingdom, is seeking to impress others with your righteous performance instead of doing it for God. So you can get everything right. You can understand you get in by faith, and that the whole point of, of the Christian life is to love other people, and yet you can still ruin everything if you're doing it to impress other people. 
He draws on three major practices of their day. The practices of giving to the needy, of praying, and of fasting. And and he doesn't say they're wrong. Far from it, he says they're, they're good and right. But he says you can take these good things and you can turn them into horrible things. Each time he says the same thing, when you, when you give to the needy, when you pray, when you fast, don't do it for the approval of other people. Instead, do it in secret. Now, why would he say to do that? I think it's because he knows that we're so wicked. Or at least he knows that I'm wicked. Because <laughs> we're so prone to take these acts of simple obedience and turn them into performance for the praise of other people. I mean, it takes me like a tenth of a second uh, between uh, going from genuinely, genuinely loving another person to then thinking, hey, look at me genuinely, genuinely loving another person. Right? Like, I, I, I can be pure-hearted for like a tenth of a second. And then I'm like, did anybody notice that? You didn't see that? Okay, I'll post it on Facebook, and then we'll see if anybody knows that I did this because I really want you to see how good I'm doing at, at following Jesus. Okay, and that's our, heart, our heart's work. I don't think I'm unique like this. Our hearts work like this. We, we always want other people to see what we're doing. We can take the righteousness he calls us to and turn it into a means to get praise and approval from other people. And Jesus says, if you do that, you ruin the whole thing. You ruin the whole thing. Don't become hypocrites. So this is a, a huge danger. So he says, when you do good things, do them in secret. The second major threat is money. It's that we can love money more than Jesus. So this is chapter 6, verses 19 through 34. You can have the best intentions. You can want to follow Jesus. You can receive his invitation, want to be part of his kingdom, and you can even start out well. But over time, the concerns of this life, anxieties that you have about money and possessions, desire that you have for wealth can come in and choke out your faith. So Jesus says the lure of money is exceedingly dangerous. So as you enter the kingdom, as you begin to follow him, you have to decide right now, who are you going to serve, King Jesus or King Dollar? Who's your king? Who's it going to be? Matthew 6.21, he says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Matthew 6.24, he says, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So don't waste your time. Don't waste your time. Decide now, as you enter the kingdom, as you begin to follow Jesus, who is your real king? Don't try to have Jesus and money. It's not going to work. Pick Jesus or pick money, but pick one. But Jesus does give some encouragement. He says, it's not like if you choose Jesus, you're going to starve. He doesn't say choose Jesus and a life of poverty necessarily follows. To the contrary, in chapter 6, verse 33, he says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. All these things, he's just talking about how you know, people worry about what am I going to wear, what am I going to eat. He says, don't worry about those things. Seek Jesus first, make him your king. And if you put him first, you get these other things too. Um, C.S. Lewis said it really well once. He said, aim at heaven and you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you get neither. Okay? Aim at heaven, you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, you get neither. And Jesus says, here's the danger. 
You can follow after me. You can come by faith. You can say, I'm going to love people. But if your heart is tied up in pursuing money, it's going to wreck you. So watch out. The third warning is one that I need to hear. It's the danger that shows up in chapter 7, verses 1 through 12. He said it's dangerous to try forcing change on others instead of praying. It's the danger of trying to force change on others instead of praying. Um, so for me, this, is, this has hit me this week. I think for many Christians, many churches, we can shipwreck on this one. Uh, it'll, it'll obviously be a while till we get this far in the sermon, but let's just get a synopsis now. God's calling us to love the world. He's calling us to change the world, right? Be salt and light in the world. Uh, and, and we can hear that call to change the world, get very excited about that. It's a high calling. That's wonderful. Like, God's given us this privilege. We're going to change the world. It's wonderful. Uh, but there's a subtle danger there. It's the danger that's expressed in chapter 7, verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. Judge not that you be not judged. This is, this is a hard one to understand, isn't it? Because Jesus is calling us to change the world. It's like, Lord, you just told us to be salt and light. We're supposed to change the world. You've given us the, the, the way to live. You've shown us how to, how to do it. And now you're sending us out in the world that's still dominated by Satan. And you tell us, judge not, lest we be judged. It's going to be pretty hard to change the world, isn't it? If I can't judge people, how am I supposed to make other people change if I can't make them feel bad about what they're doing? But Jesus says, all right, watch out. Here's the trap. Here's the the subtle trap. When you discover the truth, when Christ changes your heart and you fall in love with him and you want to live for him, it's natural and good to want others to know it too. You, You discovered the fountain of life. You want to share it with other people. But you have to face the fact that you can't force others to change. I can't force you to change. You can't force others to change. You can't beat people over, with the, over the head with the truth until they believe. That's what we try to do. There's a difference, he's saying here, between being the light of the world and taking that light and shining it in people's eyes until they can't see. There's a difference between being the salt of the earth and cutting people open and pouring salt in their wounds. Right? Jesus says we're called to be salt and light, not to blind people and make them hurt. So he says, don't judge as you go out into the world, trying to change the world, trying to love the world. Don't take the truth as a club to beat people over the head and make them feel so bad that then you think, I'm going to force them to repent. He says, it's not the way to do it. Instead, he says, pray. Pray. Verse 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. Our job is not to make people feel so bad about themselves or so bad about their sin that we somehow force them to repent. Jesus is not giving us that job. He's giving us the job of living out his life and praying for people that they might change as well. And then he says in verse 12, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. The golden rule, here it is. God says our job is to pray for people and to love people. We don't have to judge people. We don't have to condemn people. We don't have to force them to change. We pray for them, and we love them. 
That's how his kingdom advances. This is how radically it's all about love. It's not about lawlessness or legal, legal, legalism. It's about love. The last danger, though, is probably the biggest. This is how he ends his sermon in verses 13 through 29. The last danger is merely hearing Jesus without doing what he says. He's very clear as he ends his sermon, so I'm going to be very clear as I end this sermon. The words of Jesus are not just for our information. He wants us to obey them. Four times in four different pictures, Jesus lays this out. Chapter 7, verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Verse 17, so every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Verse 24, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Jesus says there's two ways. There's a wide way, there's a narrow way. The wide way is to hear the words of Jesus and not do what he says. The narrow way is to hear the words of Jesus and do it. He says there's two kinds of trees. There's healthy trees and there's diseased trees. The healthy trees believe what Jesus says and do it. They bear good fruit of a life that's changed. The diseased trees hear the words of Jesus but don't bear any fruit. So there's two kinds of people who say, Lord, Lord, the people who he knows that do his will and those who don't. He says there's two kinds of houses. And you notice they're both the same and that they both hear his words. The wise man hears his words and does what he says. And his house is solid, secure, firm. The foolish man hears the words and doesn't do them. In light of his conclusion, my conclusion for us today is simply this. Let's be prepared to do what Jesus says. We're going to spend a lot of time in this sermon over the next couple months. And I'm going to try really hard to understand exactly what it says and to try to teach that clearly to you. Um, and I welcome your questions and clarifications as we go through it so we can all understand it better. Uh, but at the end of the day, we have not succeeded if all we've done is understood this sermon better. That's not the point. That puts us in the category of the foolish man who hears the words but doesn't do them. The point is not to know the right answers, but to be obedient. The worst thing that we could do is hear the words and not obey. So our application today and over the next few months, I mean, really, this is every week, right? Every time we open the Bible, it's not just to know what it says, but to do it. So make it your commitment this year. With, I mean, join with me. We want to know this sermon. We want to understand it. But most of all, we want to do it. We're going to build our lives on the rock of Jesus, King Jesus. So when the storms come, and the storms will come, 
and the winds will blow. We stand firm. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this gift. This gift is so good. And I, I'm excited. I just want to spend another five hours together going through everything and understanding it. But you know, I, I trust your timing. And I pray as we go through the next few months and spend time soaking in this message that you will work. You will convict. You will transform. Uh, take the logs out of our eyes. Help us to see how we need to change. Um, Father, thank you for the invitation into this kingdom. The invitation that's free. Um, and the lifestyle that you called us to that's good. Um, Help us to obey Jesus in some way this week.